would I like to commentate? I said, oh no, I don't think I could do it. I said, no, I'll try a bunch of people. None of them were available. And Bill phoned me up on the Friday night before the weekend invitational weekend and said, um, hello, commentator. Will you help us out this weekend? Then we'll get someone decent for the World OKs the following weekend. So I went in with no instruction and they would have a radio link van and Bill was beyond the beach. And now for the latest, let's go out to the water. Here's Peter Montgomery. He said, DC, I'm worried about that Kiwi boat, KZ7. It's fast boat and it's very, very well sailed. He said, we've got to rattle a cage somehow. And the next night, out of nowhere, there had been 74 uh, 12 metres built in aluminum. Why would you want to build one in fiberglass unless you wanted to cheat? And Tom Black thought, uh-oh, I don't think I'd have said that. But And I know for sure Michael Fay got sidetracked and distracted. It was ridiculous. We went in, and uh, my first girl, hello, Michael, my first girl, Michael, have I really got cancer? And he looked at me, and I'll never forget the look. It'll probably, out of all the looks I've ever had from anyone, this one will haunt me the most, because he looked at me and said, boy, I've got to write one here, haven't I? I've told him that three months ago, four months ago. Peter Montgomery has the most recognisable voice in world sailing and is known colloquially as the voice of the America's Cup, having commentated the last 13 editions of the Old Mug. But he's much more than that, having also broadcast all 13 round-the-world races, the last 10 Olympic Games, not to mention countless All Blacks tests and weekend sports shows. Peter delves into some of the highlights of his 51-year broadcasting career, how he stumbled into the industry, how he pioneered many of the approaches to modern broadcasting and his relationship with a mythical little old lady with blue rinse hair from Riverton. He also talks about the story behind one of the most recognisable pieces of New Zealand sporting commentary, his take on the famous accusation by Dennis Connor when he labelled Team New Zealand cheats, what made Sir Peter Blake tick and how Team New Zealand wouldn't have won the 95 America's Cup without him, and his take on his sometimes frosty relationship with Grant Dalton. On a more personal level, he opens up about one episode in his life he's not altogether proud about, namely his reaction to being told he had cancer. PJ is full of stories, and has an incredible recall for details and dates. We could have spoken for hours, and would still have only been touching the surface. It's not certain how often we'll hear his voice on the airways in future, but he has made an enduring contribution to sailing and broadcasting. So it was a pleasure to sit down with him for this podcast. I hope you enjoy. Well, Peter Montgomery, welcome to Broadreach Radio. Yeah, good to be aboard. Thank you. Well, I must admit, one of my earliest memories of you is listening to Sports World on Sunday morning radio when I was a kid, um, and you would often catch up with people around the world and say, how are you, where are you? So um, 
PJ, how are you? Where are you? Well, yeah, I'm very good, thank you. And uh, I'm at home here in uh, Takapuna Hauraki, overlooking the Hauraki Golf, and uh, I'm, I'm in, in good shape and good heart. Well, I think it's quite appropriate that we're looking out over the Hauraki because uh, so much has happened on that space of water in the last uh, probably 25 years in particular, and it's a lot of the stuff that we'll probably delve into over the next little while. Um, but just um, taking you back only a couple of months or so since the America's Cup finished, in that time you've probably reflected a little bit. How do you look back on that event? Um, in the end, I, I, I think it exceeded people's expectations. Um, there was a lot of doubt in a lot of things in terms of a monohull foiling for a start compared to the multi-holes in Bermuda and or what we saw in San Francisco and um, just how difficult they were to sail. And the whole event, um, with the limited number of entries, and then the black cloud of COVID, all of those things. And um, that did affect the event because there was no J-Class, there was no uh, Youth America's Cup. Uh, But the actual racing itself was good. Yes, after American Magic um, flipped... That, uh, my, they were my pick to challenge for the cup. And, um, because we could see them day after day, they were, their work ethic, they were here first, and, uh, they were very impressive. But when they, uh, had their cap size, um, it just affected so much. And while they got sailing again, water and salt water and electronics just don't mix. So, um, uh, th- that was disappointing, but the Italians were good and formidable, and certainly Team New Zealand, um, while they worked hard and we could see what they were doing, um, they had no ma- match racing, no actual, and that showed. And um, Peter Burling, notably, is uh, an outstanding sailor in high performance. Uh, boats, not only the 49ers, but also um, what he's done in the America's Cup and Youth America's Cup. But he does not have the background in match racing that um, a generation before where Chris Dixon, Russell Coots, Peter Gilmore, all of these top names, Eddie Wardenow, and you name them, all around the world, they'll be at the Bermuda Gold Cup, the Swedish Match Cup, the Monsoon Cup and all the citizen match racing when you think right through the 70s. I mean, we had every top name in the world except Dennis Connor, including Paul Elvstrom, Gary Jobson, Ted Turner of Courageous uh, on the helm in 1977. They were all here. And um, that really uh, uh, helped our, our sailors of that generation. And I think it showed a bit that, but they were able to get it. They had a faster boat. But in the end, Team New Zealand um, needed a bit more wind. If uh, the Italians had pitched their delivery for 7 to 11, 12 knots, and that's what it was during the Cup. And uh, if it had been 14, certainly 15, 16 knots, Team New Zealand would have torched them. They were that much quicker. But, um, you know, we never saw that. So uh, uh, 
Um, some people may not want to believe it. And anyway, when it got to three all, Team New Zealand were paying attention and it was all on. I had predicted it to be 7-1, 7-2 maybe. But when it was three all, we were, it was all very interesting. There's always a lot of talk and there's been a lot of talk straight after this one about where and when the next one will be. Mm. You're a well-connected man in sailing circles. Have you got any inside oil on what you think is going to happen next? Uh, well, I think Team New Zealand, uh, there are several issues really with a simple question. Team New Zealand first want to stay in New Zealand and defend it in New Zealand. Uh, but first they've got to go through the negotiations with um, the government and not just the elected politicians, notably through MB. And... Um, my men in the field tell me the relationship between Team New Zealand and MB is not good. And that um, there were a lot of stories written, notably in the New Zealand Herald. And uh, I'll be careful just not to drop you in it with uh, with any litigation. But there were people, uh, Hamish Rutherford's sources had vested interests and um, he, would, he would have been wise to ha- have got you know, other sources. One of those interests were, was in MB. And uh, so um, I'm not sure, sure how much I should say, but let's put it this way. The relationship between MB and Team New Zealand has to be resolved and it is still a sticking point before they move on to... And the, Team New Zealand don't want to be loved, but they just want to recognise what they can bring to the event because last go, yes, because of COVID and the shutdown, I mean, they were expecting north of 100 super yachts. And the benefit to New Zealand uh, on uh, refit work, whether it's in Opua in the far north, most definitely in Whangarei, there's a couple of haul-out yards, one in Tauranga, and uh, also in Auckland. I mean, a lot of these refits would be millions and um, I don't think people quite appreciate uh, just how how big a business that is. And, you know, we hear some people with a determined to be aggrieved, whatever it'll be, and they're talking about rich, wealthy yachties, et cetera, et cetera. But the people in Whangarei, you know, they, they will be marine painters or marine electricians or marine engineers or whatever, all working on these boats. So that was a, a, a huge loss of revenue, let alone people not only off super yachts but other visitors that would go to some of the fancy lodges in, in New Zealand as well. So that that was a big disappointment that didn't happen. And I, I don't think that the MB people quite get that, just uh, the impact. And, uh, well, I, I, I know there was one bloke for the Youth America's Cup at MB, uh, they had 16 countries lined up. And this bloke uh, said, um, oh, we've got enough young, good young sailors in New Zealand to sail for the 16 countries. He just didn't get it. And they could have easily got that point in. And, you know, while we hear all these stories that the media tend to ring out a lot about, um, you know, people not being able to get home to see a dying relative, which is all very valid and true, no one's really looked at um, uh, 
the last three months of last year, the first three months of this year, when there's been doing 650 and 700 people that have simply used Auckland and or stroke New Zealand as a hub to move on to Australia or Hong Kong or wherever else. So better vetting of people coming in and out could have allowed people for Youth America's Cup or compassionate things as well. So <clears throat> I think um, uh, there are certainly some issues with MB that need to be sorted out by by the, the paid civil servants. And after the apology, such as it was, or you'd ever get from a government department, I believe there are a few people holding grudges still as well. So that that makes it difficult to get on to the future. And then you come to the other issue of um, just funding. And where do you get that? And will Emirates be back? Because my sense is Emirates, like Air New Zealand and Qantas and every other airline in the world, might have more pressing issues than a sports event. And then just getting additional funding as well. So, um, you, you know, there's still a, lo- a long way to go in terms of what Team New Zealand have, have got in mind. But uh, I, there, there are issues to be resolved in New Zealand first before they start working about what's going to happen with um, New York Yacht Club and the Italians and so on. There's also been talk about a, a deed of gift race against Ineos in the Isle of Wight. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I believe it's still in the mix, but I don't think it'll happen. Um, yeah, it, it's, um, you know, what, what I am told is that suggestion actually came out of Team New Zealand. So whether or not it happens, we'll have to wait and see. Will we hear PJ Montgomery's voice at the next one? Oh, look, I've done 13, and it gets to the stage of life when it's someone else's turn. And I'm very mindful of uh, people in public life, notably in broadcasting and politics. You can outstay your welcome and trip over your bottom lip. I haven't said categorically no, but uh, I, I was asked back in... 2017, Jason Wynn Stanley, the head of the whole News Talk ZB operation um, and um, talk radio, if you like, at NZME Radio, formerly the radio network, he said to me uh, in July 2017, we want you for 2021, PJ. And I said, well, my first ambition in 2021 in March is to be alive and my second is to still have my marbles, assuming that I think I have my marbles. So, I, I, look, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed uh, the last cup and doing it in broadcasting and radio because in contrast to television where you have to work to the discipline to enhance the pictures, with radio it's trying to create the word pictures and the theatre of the mind, if you like. And um, I enjoyed it. And Chris Steele, who's a real talent, um, was great to work with, but we had some other very good people as well. So um, I, I, I seriously doubt that I would be back for a 14th. Well, you talk about 13. So the first one was in 1977. No, uh, no 1980 was my first okay. live yeah, at Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, so that's the run of 13 Cups. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And in fact, you've provided live commentary on either TV or radio for every America's Cup race involving yep. a New Zealand boat. Yes, yep. And mm-hmm. so recently you're inducted into the America's Cup Hall of Fame. 
uh, at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron. There was a function. What was that experience like for you? Um, well, it was um, it was a very special night in many ways, apart from the humbling issue of being inducted in the America's Cup Hall of Fame. I'm told I'm the 96th and the 12th chronicler, uh, rather the 12th New Zealander and the 6th chronicler, meaning someone chronicling either written press or still photographer. Um, I, I, I think part of it was that uh, whoever was behind the whole nomination and however it happened, being in New Zealand, they thought it would be good for a New Zealander, but... Uh, the people eligible to be inducted, they work on the same system as they do American football, baseball, basketball, and ice hockey. So there's got to be a time difference, you know. And and uh, so if I'm the 12th New Zealander, then the 11 other people from Tom Snackenberg and Russell Coots and Brad Butterworth, oh, the type five, Murray Jones, um, Simon Daubney, Warwick Fleury, uh, Dean Phipps, they're all in it. So um, no doubt Burling, Chute, Glenn Ashby will get there one day, but there's got to be that time thing. So anyway, I was, I, I'd been on the selection committee of the America's Cup Hall of Fame since 19, uh, 2000, rather, because um, up until then, um, it, it had been very much centred on Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, I know that uh, both Tom Whidden, Gary Jobson, Halsey Hirishoff, uh, and Dyer Jones, I know those four people were behind it and suggested that I might like to consider being part of it. And I was the first person from the Southern Hemisphere. And um, it later came to me uh, from someone else, not those names I mentioned, that they were concerned that... Um, the America's Cup Hall of Fame Selection Committee was too much New England Yankee. And I had no idea what that meant, and I'm still not quite sure what it means. I, I think it's a bit like First Four Ships in Canterbury. Um, and and they wanted to widen it, which now I think there's, you know, several other New Zealanders, um, there's Australians and people from all over the world now. And so anyway, I was told by Steve Deshoy, the chairman, I had to stand down because I'd been nominated. And I thought, well, well, that's a great honour and they would have left it at that. Anyway, someone from deep within the source told me it was one of the quickest yeses ever. So that was all very nice and flattering. And um, uh, so that night, it, it, it was it was very special, but also because... Um, of the whole lockdown and the delays and postponement, oh, it was meant to, the America's Cup Hall of Fame was meant to be um, on the first lay day of the Cup. But as we know, there was a lockdown, it was delayed, and in the end there was only one lay day rather than the two originally scheduled. So um, it was after the Cup. And Bruno Trublet, who is a, well, an America's Cup Hall of Fame member and on the selection committee, he was here in Auckland and representing the Hirishoff Museum, uh, Bill Lynn and Steve Deshoy, the chairman. And he, uh, Bruno, I think also had the idea that he would like to make it as much a celebration of the America's Cup as well, because there'd been no dinners as in the past, the Louis Vuitton dinners or functions and so on. There'd be nothing. And um, 
So, and, and a lot of that was to do with the COVID lockdown. And uh, I know Patricia Bertelli felt it wouldn't be a good idea to see people partying and having a good time in New Zealand uh, when um, Italy was under siege with COVID. And that was one of the factors, and there were others as well. So it was it was a great night and very special, and um, it's a very long story how it happened, but normally they have a notable person uh, who, who maybe was in the America's Cup Hall of Fame to um, introduce others. And uh, it's a long story how it happened, but it came through Bruno Trouble's wife, Melanie, um, and she said, why don't you get Kate to, to do it? And uh, anyway, Bruno picked that up and Kate did it and she made some very nice personal family comments, but also her research went to Tom Whidden, Brad Butterworth and Russell Coots, who said some very nice things. And uh, so it was it was very special to be... Uh, it, it was a great night and uh, it, 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 was, it was a special honour because having been on the selection committee uh, for... Well, since 2000, virtually 20 years, I'm very aware how serious the committee take it, every nomination, and how they discuss it and go through it. And, uh, and I'm aware of the people who are in there. So uh, to go through all those things made it very special. Kate being uh, your daughter, Kate. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. yep. So you are widely known as the voice of the America's Cup, um, but I... There is a fair bit else to your resume, isn't there? Because uh, most notably, 10 Olympic Games, uh, all 13 round-the-world races, and yep. not to mention plenty of All Blacks tests. Yeah. Just uh, can you sum up, how do you look back on a career that includes those sorts of things? Uh, when I think of th- those things and the Olympics, you know, to see uh, John Walker win and Daniel Loder win and, you know, so many Sarah Olmer win and, and well, all, all of the, the medals um, that New Zealand sailors have won uh, from 1984 on, I've been there and called them all and th- that was all very special. Um, and, uh, well, it all, all started really, um, I don't know how you'd sum it up in a sentence or two, Um but from modest fitful beginnings, when um, the stretch of water I'm looking at that you referred to was where the World OK Dinghy Championships were held in 1970. And um, Bill McCarthy and I went to school in Dunedin, to King's High School in Dunedin. And Bill had made a full-time career in broadcasting. And um, I... I uh, had come to Auckland uh, in 1965 and through people who knew people from Otago University and had uh, had a great friend at King's College, uh, Rob Fisher actually, who later became the chairman of New Zealand Rugby, um, I was told to look him up and I did and and um, another friend from Dunedin and, and uh, I, we started flatting with Rob because his parents went overseas and through Rob we met so many other different people and separately, way back, uh, I'm getting off the subject, but sort of staying on it, um, I, I was running at the National Junior Athletic Champs in 62, and that's where I first met Kim McDell. And um, the McDell family have been a huge influence on my broadcast, well, life. And and um, K- 
Kim was on his way to winning yet another national title. I think it was the mile then in, in 62. And so, and, and Kim and Rob Fisher are all in the same year. And so they all combined. And through those guys, I met an awful lot of people and started sailing virtually every other weekend, um, right through the year. Uh, I'm first on a C-class boat called, uh, Varuna and then a, an A-class boat, uh, called Ariel. And when McCarthy came to, Auckland in 69 we kept in touch a lot and I'd go to catch up with him many Friday nights at the Royal International Hotel with this bloke Fred the barman with a black bow tie and um, there I was talking to Alan Richards or Bob Irvine the outstanding rugby commentator Ray Cody Rocky Patterson you name him I loved it and leading up to the 1970 World OKs they had an idea they wanted to spread a wider base for commentary, uh, notably on radio, but to a lesser degree on television, uh, than what had been done. Because in those days, it was rugby, some rugby league, racing, and um, Olympic sports. Really, it was a struggle even for women's netball to even get covered. And they wanted to do the World OK Dinghies. And Bill phoned me up and said, would I like to commentate? I said, oh, no, don't think I could do it because he knew I had a real fascination with radio, radio commentaries and um, notably Australian horse racing, which we can talk about if we had time. And and um, I said, no, I'll try a bunch of people. So I tried many different people, John Stewart and Bill tried Helmer Peterson, uh, Kim McDowell. None of them were available. And Bill phoned me up on the Friday night before the weekend invitational weekend and said um hello commentator will you help us out this weekend then we'll get someone decent for the world okays the following weekend so i went in with no instruction not thrown in we had a what was a radio link van in those days which seems well it is another era another world remember there are only four radio stations in the greater auckland area then compared to some ridiculous number now what is it 47 or 48 and and um uh, so, um, and they would have a radio link van and Bill was beyond the beach. And now for the latest, let's go out to the water. Here's Peter Montgomery. So I'd give an update and whatever. And at the end of the weekend, Bill said, can you help out for the World OKs? Well, if you think I was OK, I would. So we, we did the World OKs and it was un, won by uh, a brilliant uh, Swedish sailor called Kent Carlson. And um, I often think about that Swedish group. There were four of them and they had these cable fishnet jerseys and before they went out and the New Zealanders Clive Robertson Co they all did it they would go out and lie over backwards in the water and soak these woolen jerseys to get more weight and um that's been banned of course now you because you, you've got to have weight jackets and, and you know special life jackets but they they did that um and i've often wondered about it not only the happy memory of where it all started but i wonder if these guys can walk these days you know the, the loads and pressure they would have put on their backs notably let alone other parts of their body uh they just weren't meant to take that load anyway that was won by kent carlson and later that year Alan Richards called and said, would I like to commentate the one-ton cup? Now, it's very difficult for younger listeners to get this, but um, the one-ton cup was the first major international event sailed in New Zealand. Chris Bezade 
had challenged for the one-ton cup in Halligaland, Germany in 68, and got a close second, and worked out how we could win, and they went back in 69 and pulled it off. They had won the 67 Sydney Hobart. And yes, there had been other victories, including for Dalis, Jim Davin, and the Sydney Hobart of 66, and um, in the uh, Whangarei Numea. But they were regional events. They weren't that you had to pack up and ship your yacht to the other side of the world with containers and the the first major time that was done as opposed to Olympic sailing whether they're going to Melbourne with Manda and Crop or um, uh, Peterson and Wells in Tokyo and subsequently in dinghies but for a keel boat it was a big deal going to um, uh, well Flensburg in North Germany and and uh, so they they won it and on the day they won it, the 21st of July, uh, uh, um, 1969, the Auckland Star, the front page on the left-hand side, Rainbow Two wins one-ton cup, and on the right-hand side, there there it was, a man steps on the moon for the first time. So i give you an idea in those days how big it was, and the Auckland Star had an outstanding writer over there, Noel Holmes. So when it came to defend it in 71, there were um, there was a fleet of 14 or 15, and it was a genuinely international fleet with some very good sailors from Europe and very definitely from Australia on a yacht called Stormy Petrel that won it. And <clears throat> But we were th- th- on this Navy frigate, and I was invited to have one other person with me, and uh, the person who was my first expert analyst was Roy McDowell, Kim McDowell and Terry McDowell's father, who they went on later to win the world 18-foot skiff champ in 1974 on Travelodge, the J.J. Giltman. In those days, you could call it the world championship. And um, so Pop McDowell was my first analyst, and he, he was just great and a huge influence in just so many ways in terms of the shape of what we did and what we think we could improve and and so on. And... Uh, <clears throat> so after that, very soon after that, um, I got approached by a couple of guys, um, Johnny Douglas and a guy called Dave Pawsey, and they were in programs in ZB. And I think they were shocked, as long as management was shocked, by the reaction to our coverage in the One Ton Cup. And um, all of a sudden they were getting approached from marine companies they'd never heard of or had anything to do with or any business with, like Epiglass, Marine Paints, and others associated with that. And they thought, boy, this could be an opportunity. And uh, so they suggested then, uh, it would have been about March or April um, 1971, that we do a regular Saturday morning show on sailing. And that went through until around 2015. And while it was maybe time for me to hand the bat, and I'm disappointed there's still not a regular segment of sailing on Saturday morning in a two-hour show, um, and much more than the Olympics and Olympic sailing uh, uh, and or the America's Cup, because there's so much happening. Um, like just a couple of weeks ago, the Lipton Cup, the 100th edition. And, it, you know, it, we, we, I remember once we commentated, well, we commentated several of them live, including Honey, skippered by Jim Davin, winning it with Brian Craze, who was famous as the coach of Auckland Rugby that ran the, won the Ramfilly Shield. So um, from from those early days, we um, 
there, there was clearly a spot that, that they wanted to fill. And in those days, notably the Auckland star, Alan Sefton, used to write extensive pieces. Sefton was brilliant about writing about people and also writing about sport, but not so much necessarily reportage of the race as in a game. Um, Because he used to write football or soccer. And as Charlie Dempsey, the late Charlie Dempsey once said, Sefton was his greatest publicity agent. But, you know, Alan wrote a lot of great stuff about, and his pieces were about people, and John Gasbridge was writing extensive stuff in the Herald. And I think broadcasting felt they had to to, uh, go with it. And Bill McCarthy started doing more for TV, and I started doing more for radio. And really, that opened the door. And I was just lucky enough to be Johnny on the spot and go with it, really. I remember I was in um, Sydney for the 73 Hobart. That was also coincided with the stopover of the first Whitbread Round the World race. Anyway, long story short, I think the Australians were cool on this Whitbread race because they could see it as a threat to their beloved Sydney Hobart. And um, the key people running... um, the Whitbread Round the World race decided they would look seriously at uh, coming to New Zealand. And there was a guy running the race then, ex-Royal Navy, now with the Royal uh, Navy um, Sailing Association, Admiral Otto Steiner, and a guy called John Fox, who uh, was a classic Englishman, fresh out of Yes Minister. And anyway, they came to New Zealand and uh, I know they were impressed and charmed by the flag officers and committee of the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron at the time. And they said, righto, um, the, the next race we will come to New Zealand. That's the 77 race. And I, I remember in um, du- du- during the 77 race, PJ Blake sent me a card from Rio to say, we've got to have a boat, New Zealand flag boat next race. Because I I went to the start of that 77 race. And um, what happened there was that Blake, about two weeks earlier, uh, had been best man to Claire Francis, who subsequently became an acclaimed author. Uh, But she was skipper of ADC Akatrak. And she married this French bloke. I'm not sure how long the marriage lasts, but they've gone their separate ways. But Blake was the best man. He said, come over and meet them. So I went over and Claire Francis was very nice and charming. And she started explaining to Peter that uh, she'd done a deal with Capital Radio and was going to broadcast three times uh, a week um, through single sideband radio, giving an update of what they were doing in ADC Akatrak. And... <clears throat> Um, this is through, uh, Porter's Head Radio, Porter's Head Radio, <laughs> you know, uh, through the whole single sideband, not like satellite radio now. And, um, so we, we listened intently and Peter asked her, PJ Blake asked her a few questions and we went then back to Heath Condor and Blake immediately told Robin Knox Johnston, co-skipper of Heath Condor along with Leslie Williams, um, <clears throat> exactly what Claire had told us. And Robin Knox Johnson said, well, why don't two Kiwis speak to each other? Meaning I could be back at base somewhere and PJ Blake could call. So we set the system up 
that uh, every Friday night I would go into Durham Lane, this beautiful old Art Deco building no longer there with the most magnificent uh, radio theatre in there. Um, And between 8 and 10 each night, Blake would call, and there was another New Zealander, Les Best, sailing on Condor as well. And I'd take Peter Blake's parents and Les Best's parents, and we'd hang about. And um, maybe out of four weeks, three weeks, we would hear from them. The other would be a disappointing Friday night for the parents. <clears throat> but that was the start of it. But then um, I got a bit more creative with reel-to-reel tapes, and I had these crocodile clips and I shouldn't say too much, but let's put it this way. Um, I've uh, managed to work on a lot of telephones around the world. These are the old landline phones that younger people wouldn't even know what I'm talking about, but taking off the mouthpiece and clipping it to record it all. And so that's where the idea came from. But then, because uh, I talked about radio cars before, and they had these um, VHF frequencies, and there were 10 throughout New Zealand. And so when Blake was going to do a tour of New Zealand after uh, the Sydney Hobart on Ceramco, the sound engineers fitted Ceramco with these um, VHF frequencies. So uh, when we were coming to Nelson or they'd come into Wellington or come into Napier, they could go live on whatever the station was in Hawke's Bay. And uh, I actually, uh, after the... um, Sydney Hobart of 81, I sailed with PJ Blake. Um, and that was the first time I saw liquid Himalayas. And the boat went over four times and it was, whoa, boy, we went, uh, you know, and, and to be lying prone for a couple of minutes with these huge white caps uh, with Peter Montgomery's name written on every second one was really some experience. But, you know, to see these guys operate and their teamwork was really something quite special. But then coming in of Ceramco, and we also set it up on Outward Bound as well with Digby Taylor, exactly the same system. We, we, we could talk, and there was Blake just north of Kawa Island talking to a talkback caller from Invercargill, for goodness sake. And, you know, when they arrived. So... Um, this sounds like I'm beating my chest a bit, but, I mean, things evolved and it wasn't a, um, an idea just coming up, let's do it. Things evolved and we worked on it, but without doubt, what we set up, PJ Blake and I set up with Ceramco and then later Lion New Zealand 84, 85, and then most definitely with Steinlager too, and um, in 89-90, and Grant Dalton and Fisher and Paykel. In terms of the whole radio system and what we had, that just meant that uh, when they were in and around New Zealand coming in and out, and, and to a degree, even now, that what was the Volvo, now the Ocean Race, is the style that we developed. It's been much more refined now with satellite radio and so on, but we pioneered that, and so I was just lucky enough to um, to go with it. I think I've got off the, su- <laughs> the subject here. You've often talked about the little old lady with the blue rinse from Riverton <clears throat> as that mythical person mm-hmm. you talk to when broadcasting. Yeah. <clears throat> Have you ever met a little old lady from, with a blue rinse from Riverton? <laughs> Uh, on the very first day I was broadcasting, and as I've explained earlier, I was thrown in the deep end. And I had an idea of a couple of ideas, notably from uh, when I mentioned the Australian horse racing. 
because I'd been fascinated with the Aussie horse races, how they could say so much in the final 250 metres and how these guys have got the ability to be able to pull the right words out in such a limited time and match the occasion. And I'd been fascinated with that. And and, uh, so that was part of my challenge when I started broadcasting. But Bill McCarthy told me that day, never forget, you're talking to the little old lady with the blue rinse hairdo and white tennis shoes in Riverton. And I've never forgotten that. And this last America's Cup, she was still my number one listener. And I always felt that um, the little old lady, well, if I could talk and my mother, who passed away back in 2013, if she could understand what I was trying to say, rather than, <clears throat> because the challenge was, if I talk to you about a googly and uh, uh, the if the ball has hit the silly mid on, or you're chipping out of a bunker, whether it's cricket or golf, there is still jargon used. And it's important to be faithful to sailing and whether it's hard on the wind or ease sheets or whatever it was, but to try and explain that in plain English. Um, but many years ago, I was actually invited to speak in Riverton. And of all things, this woman dressed up I found out later she was a lot younger, but she dressed up as the classic little old lady with the blue rinse hairdo. But I have met many women, not from Riverton necessarily, they could be in Hawke's Bay or other parts of New Zealand. Um, and that's why that, um, uh, I, I think it's important and not, not to, um, become, the broadcaster should always remember they're only the link between the event they're describing and the audience. And it's not about them, the broadcaster, uh, or it shouldn't be. And and or, or also that to try and speak in a language uh, that you can take people with you. And while you wanted to be faithful to the sport, I recognised early on that, you know, uh, trying to satisfy necessarily the Knowles and the Auckland waterfront who can't be told anything anyway, um, they're part of the audience, definitely, um, and you want them to be. But more importantly, and over the years, I mean, we've had really expert analysts who, you know, have been talking to them, uh, notably this last go, say, Chris Steele, and we had guys off American Magic, Leonard Takahashi, and very good people out on the water that we had as well, uh, whether it was Murray Jones or Brad Butterworth, and they could talk that jargon that, the yachting aficionados want to hear. But um, I, I, I had decided earlier on, um, with, with that advice from McCarthy, I've never forgotten, uh, that, you know, there, it became very obvious to me early on, as far back as the OK Dinghies, but most notably during the One Ton Cup, that the feedback we were getting and the audience we were getting not only on radio, but later on television, was general sports fans. And that's who you were were talking to as well. So um, the answer is yes and no, really. I mean, yes, or sort of. I've met a little old lady with the blue and head. And about a month or two later, a guy called Doc Williams, who uh, was a very good broadcaster, both radio and television, and uh, was a producer of... In South Pacific Television, and I, I did stuff with on rugby. On, on with uh, Doc told me, every time you open your mouth, you should lose a little bit of yourself. 
Meaning if it's good enough for all of these people, whether in radio land or broadcasting land, television land, to give out their time to listen to you, it's good enough for you to be doing your best to, you know, listen to them as well and, and, uh, to, to work hard on that. So the advice I had early on, day one with Bill McCarthy and within a month or two from Doc Williams, they are still the two rules I live by. You also became known as someone who could make something fairly dull sound very dramatic. Uh, you used a lot of phrases which became, you know, quite well known. And you used one just before, like liquid Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Um, are these sorts of phrases um, that you dream up maybe just when walking along Takapuna Beach or do they just come to you as you talk? Uh, uh, both. Um, but, but at times I might think of something and think, well, that might do it. Or I might hear something, but as a modification of it. And others just, just come out and, you know, match the occasion, which comes back to the point of my admiration and how impressed I've been with um, – horse race commentators, not just all Australian. I mean, a guy like Keith Hobb and there's some other very good guys in New Zealand now and there's um, um, some very, a couple of very good guys in Melbourne now, but way back when, Bert Bryant, Bill Collins, Johnny Tapp, these guys, and they would do that in the phrases. But also um, I, I found early discussions, because I have commentated both rugby, uh, I, I, I've commentated rugby on both radio and television as well. Um, and when you talk to people like, uh, or going way back, um, uh, Bob Irvine to a degree, I mean, Winston McCarthy, his, his commentary still stand, would still stand up today. Um, but, uh, Bob Irvine was very accurate about what he would do. He didn't necessarily come out with that many phrases, but he did a few, but then followed by a guy called John Howson. And he would start saying, right, running ball. Well, all of a sudden you knew he had said, right, scrum down at 10 meter, uh, 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 at the 10 meter line in South African territory, the All Blacks on attack. The ball goes in, right, running ball. All of a sudden you've got the picture, the, um, the All Blacks, whether it's the halfback or first five, they're running right with the ball. And then he would carry on from there. So just phrases like that. Uh, and there were countless others that, you know, some other very, very good broadcasters, uh, Tony Johnson notably, and Grantners, but they both had, did, all the good television broadcasters have had a radio background. And, uh, and then after, um, Tony Johnson, Andrew Saville, and, um, now the current radio broadcaster in Auckland, Elliot Smith, I mean, they're learning these phrases just to try and give a summary. And so that was partly what, what, what I, I did. But I, I remember being on the stern of Ceramco in New Zealand and this big mother's coming at us and you just, the stern rising up as you're looking up and this white crest with my name on it and Christ. And we went over four times on that delivery trip from Hobart to, it, w- it wasn't funny. But what, and what, what impressed me in that was that the guys were shouting, not because they were panicking, but just to be heard over the elemental forces, the noise, the crash, the noise of the sea and the wind. And of course, the, the, the sound of the sails flapping and the boat prone on its side. And, uh, it was some experience. All right. So, um, no, I mean, I, mean, I have worked on other things or tried to thought of, not especially going out of my way, but I've just tried to, you know, do things that, you know, could work. Perhaps the phrase you're most 
famous for is uh, that was actually voted by the Sunday Star Times as the most memorable piece of New Zealand sporting commentary. I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, when you declared in 1995, the America's Cup is now New Zealand's Cup. Mm. Obviously, I haven't delivered it quite the dramatic mm. fashion that you did. What's the story behind that one? Well, um, uh, before that, in, in, in 92, I was sounded out uh, to be involved as a, a, a Southern Hemisphere Antipodean commentator in the movie called Wind. This is a Francis Ford Coppola production. And uh, Carol Ballard was an award-winning director, Academy Award-winning director. He was the director. And uh, Matthew Modine and Jennifer Grey were the the lead actors. And I, I flew up from San Diego to... Uh, um, just the airport north of San Francisco on the, uh, on the bay, Oak, Oakland airport, um, 10 times. And we talked about a lot of things then. So perhaps there was something way back unconscious, not, not structured like that, but I'd, I'd worked on that. And then when it came to, um, the day that was, uh, Saturday, the 13th of May, 1995 in San Diego, Sunday, Mother's Day, the 14th of May, 1995 here in New Zealand. And I, I woke up quite early and I thought this could be in a significant day for New Zealand. Uh, when you think of all that had happened and both the challenges in 86, 87, and then the big boat and then 92, and then finally they've got there and how comprehensive it was about to be. And um, so I, I actually did write down notes of uh, what I wanted to try and summarise in the final 90 seconds. Um, my impressions on the America's Cup when I first went in 1980, thinking I'd be supporting Australia forever. One, financially beyond New Zealand. Two, the technology was way beyond New Zealand. And three, uh, we just didn't have the sailors' experience enough to keep. But then how things changed in September to, uh, um, in, uh, 1983 when Australia 2 won the Cup. And I know a lot of people, any red-blooded New Zealander, you say to them, well, if the Aussies can do it, so can we. And I actually know a couple of people who were very successful financially who looked very closely at backing a challenge. It never happened. And uh, Marcel Fasler came out of... Uh, the woodwork, he was um, a futures dealer in Sydney and he wanted to have a business in New Zealand and he put in the entry. But then he stubbed his toe and other people tried to carry it on and they couldn't. And um, then stepped forward Michael Fay. And to this day, I think they could have and should have won in, in Fremantle. But all of those experiences built up and it was a huge achievement. And so I wanted to set against, um, well, my first impression was that it was beyond New Zealand, and here they are, they're about to pull it off. But then to give a summary of what happened, who was competing, I think there were 11 entries that time, and finally um, to to um, get uh, in, in Fremantle, uh, and then the entries in 92 notably, and then the entries in 95. And so then specifically bring it into 95, a bit of background, who the entries, the Team New Zealand, One Australia sinking, uh, beating One Australia um, in the Louis Vuitton final, and what a great achievement it was. And so 
it was really down towards the end of the halfway down that I thought, right, I better start thinking about what, you know, I'm going. It wasn't sort of a contrived, structured thing. I mean, that was off the top of my head. Um, and and uh, because uh, we were on this um, big rib, which was called NZ Rail, and, and um, uh, the skipper was getting told what to do by the US Coast Guard that were over the top. And our, our biggest challenge, my biggest challenge then, was to try and build up to the crescendo, if you like, as Team New Zealand were crossing the line. And I was reasonably close, but we were just a moving target. So um, in the end, it sort of just came to me as it was coming out. But uh, the important thing was to say, the America's Cup is, and then pause and ring it out a bit. Now, pause, New Zealand's Cup. So um, in terms of the delivery, and it's all been very flattering and... and uh, um, I noticed that today, and subsequently since then, um, uh, in 2000, I, after that, and again it was off the top of my head, again with a similar thing, summarising first time in Auckland, first defence, second time a defence down under, but this is going to be the first time a successful defence outside of America. And uh, the America's Cup is still New Zealand's Cup. So that was all off the top of my head. But then we got to Bermuda, and I thought, oh, boy, I'm um, not quite as confident or cocky as I used to be in doing all this stuff. And uh, my uh, my daughter, Kate, who you know, has um, got an honours degree in English and is very good with words, and uh, we sat down in Bermuda and penned out a bit. And uh, it was actually Kate who came up with the line, uh, it's been 22 years in the making. Uh, San Diego 95, Bermuda 2017. And once again, I did at least contribute that bit, uh, the America's Cup is now New Zealand's Cup. And um, so interestingly, I th- but that was all virtually scripted. Um, because our circumstance, we weren't on a boat when we were doing that, and I wanted to try and get it down. And I openly acknowledged that Kate had uh, at least as much input as me on, on what, what I said, and I wanted to try and keep a, a theme of it, as I did this time as well. And I spoke to Kate about it, and um, so the key thing was, when we got to the key point, the America's Cup remains New Zealand's Cup, which, interestingly, I note that... Um, from the, um, the the review from um, the World Fin um, coming out out of um, uh, the, the World Fin Championship, he used the point: the Fin Gold Cup remains New Zealand's cup. So, anyway, it so that, that's how it happened. I mean, basically, it was um, scrambling for words and doing my best to what I admired with the Australians and scram pulling words out of the air uh, in 95 and 2000. But um, definitely I was more considered and, and definitely was written down and with input from my daughter Kate in 2017 and 21. Do you have a favourite piece of commentary of your own, not necessarily a sailing or even America's Cup one? Uh, of... Um, uh, of, of that I've done or other people have done? One that you've done. Um, well, um, 
uh, certainly the end of the America's Cup 95 because it was the first, there's nothing like the first for everything, the first all-black test, the first black cap, whatever. Um, and I, I was pleased with that in the end, um, how it came out. Also, um, I, I think, um, without being too mortal in here, um, the commentary I did on One Australia Sinking was, um, you know, just trying to summarise that in 30-odd seconds. It, it just went down before us. I mean, we, we were within 50 metres of One Australia, who were trailing Team New Zealand. And, yeah, it was a short, sharp sea, but I didn't think it was as bad as it was. And when uh, the forum backstays went, you know, oh, God, blimey. Um, and and so um, that was, um, you know, it was serious. And then to commentate over that, I, I think I got most of that right, uh, you know, pr- 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 pretty good. Uh, and and um, certainly when Coots won his gold medal, um, the day before, Sellers and Tim's, which was a huge surprise, and and on the boat we were on, and we had to do it on VHF radio. I mean, it was just archaic stuff compared to now with mobile phones and what you did. But I, I think we got, I think I got pretty close with Coot. I had Chris Timms as my expert analyst for that, and uh, he really lifted the decibel level and that, that was work. Yeah, no. Oh, there's been a lot over the years, um, from 1970 to 2021. I mean, we just casually pass over 50 years like that. And I've, I've been ringside to just so much of it, really. Yeah. You've also met a lot of influential people, and, and particularly in the America's Cup. You know, we've, we've talked about some of them already. Um, you've got great relationships with most, some you probably haven't had such a great relationship with. And, and I was just doing some reading um, yesterday. Uh, is your relationship with Grant Dalton, Team New Zealand boss, has often at times been quite public, and you, mm. you've sort of even written it about it in your book. Um, how would you describe your, your relationship with him? Well, right now it's fine. We, we get on well, very well, as we do. Yep, uh, um, and... and um, yeah, uh, um, I, I'm not sure quite why or how or where that came or started from. Um, uh, and there have been people who have speculated. Bruno Trublet thought it was because maybe I uh, was a bit close with Blake. But, you know, I, on my own defence, um, I, I wasn't necessarily um, a cheerleader for any of these guys. And at times there'd be criticism. And in fact, on Lion New Zealand, I've got video footage of Blake asking me to get off the boat. He was so angry with me. So at times you've got to do the hard bit. But um, look, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, it was it was a bit mystifying to me. But definitely, I know I had very good people in in um, in the background. But I mean, subsequently, since then, and even this year, I know Grant is very generously compared, you know, that a, a voice associated with a sport and Grant is man on motorsport. And uh, he's put me in the same category as Murray Walker, uh, who'd been a Formula One commentator for a couple of hundred years or a very long time. And so I take that, you know, as, as a compliment. But certainly Grant and I get on fine now. There's, there's no problem. But yes, there was. Um, I mean, there was never any stand at 10 paces with six guns out. There was just uh, yeah, I don't know quite. There was never any harsh words or discussion ever. 
Um, but, you know, there was, um, it, it would probably be described as, you know, the relationship was a, a bit cool or tepid. But now it's fine now. We we get on okay. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, you did mention Peter Blake and your relationship yeah. with him was very good, yeah. except for being chucked off this boat and um, yeah. in that in that year. Um, what made Peter Blake so special? Uh, I think, um, well, he thought a big idea and it, it would back himself to have a go at it, but um, whether or not he he was a really good leader, he had the ability to somehow look in people's eyes and pick the right people and get more out of them than I think they thought they could contribute. And I saw that myself in, say, the 84 Hobart. And... Um, and I'll tell you a story now where in the 89 Fastnet, this is the last big race, the Fastnet Classic, 605 nautical miles from the Isle of Wight round the Fastnet Rock off the bottom of Ireland and back to Fittish in Plymouth. And there at the Fastnet Rock, Fisher and Piker was leading by about a nautical mile and a half in front. And, and, um, so Steinlager and they had some really good people. The three watch captains were um, Kevin Shoebridge, Rossfield and Brad Butterworth. Mike Quilter was the navigator, but boy, they had some really great sailors on board too, really good sailors. And they were all paying attention, trying to inch by inch at least keep close enough to Fisher and Paykel. When we got off the Isles of Scilly, Blake um, backed himself because he knew that area well. He had sailed there a lot uh, in way back when he went on his first big OE to sail on uh, Burton Cutter in the 73 Hobart. And so he, he knew that area well, and we went close, dangerously close to the Isles of Scilly. And um, I wouldn't say we cut the corner, but we got really close. And, uh, you know, the depth charger was letting us know there wasn't a lot of room to manoeuvre. Anyway, at daybreak, we could then came out and we could see that Fisher and Paykel was in front, uh, out to the right by about three, 400 metres. So Steinlager 2 had closed down. And incidentally, in the middle of the night at two o'clock, Blake was listening to BBC radio and he said to me, um, I've just heard on BBC radio that... Uh, David Longy has resigned. So I thought, oh boy, that's, you know, things you associate as you go along. Anyway, at daybreak, uh, we were there and, and um, Steinlager 2 was closing and we were pushing the tide, which always makes me laugh because I'd been on Plymouth and stood under the statue of Francis Drake and revered him. But you can see why you could play another game of bowls because when the current is roaring out like the Waikato River, there's no way the Spaniards or anyone else could come in uh, to Plymouth. And that was exactly the difficulty that Steinlager II and Fisher and Pike were facing. And then um, Blake said, righto, guys, let's come back into the cockpit. And I, it was a privilege for me, but I didn't quite realise what was going on until I was listening to it and and then saw it happen. He had the three watch captains, 
plus my quilter and um, Blake and said, righto, guys, should we pull it out? And they had this secret weapon called Big Red. This is the sail that they had developed and had between at the top of the main mast and the mizzen mast. And should we pull it out? And they could have kept it there and just gone for it and maybe tried to beat Fisher and Paykel because they had closed in. But Fisher and Paykel still being very well sailed because Grant Dalton had some very good smart sailor men as well with him. Anyway, um, they just listening to the way Blake conducted that discussion. What do you think, guys? What do we do? And every one of those three watch captains all gave their opinion, not always always agreeing. And Mike Quilter, uh, who had a big influence with Blake as well, also gave his opinion. And Blake has his, gave his comments, and then they had a discussion, and they right, okay, we'll do it. And then the call went up, right, our crew, and up went Brig Red. And as soon as it went up, just like that, virtually Steinlager too, um, was able to gather in Fisher and Paykel and won by several hundred metres. Interestingly, when we got in alongside to the marina in Plymouth, there was Grant Dalton with uh, Murray Ross and several other guys having a serious discussion uh, about, Christ, what did the Steinlager have? We're going to have one of those as well. So they gave away their big secret weapon that they could have held secret. You know, who knows? They could have been sailing uh, um, somewhere in the doldrums over the equator and no one else could have seen them and they could have had it. Anyway, just the way Blake operated that and um, the way he talked. And another night I remember, uh, this is on Ceramco, New Zealand, and and um, uh, we, we'd been bashed by these liquid Himalayas and it got a bit, bit quieter once we were um, getting closer to the coast of New Zealand. And we went, uh, we were going to Auckland Islands and Blake at one stage said, bugger this, it's just too rough. Um, we'll do a, a big UE into Milford Sound, which is where we went. And, um, there was a, a brilliant young sailor, Don Wright, called nicknamed Jaws and another sailor who I'm, I, I'm not quite sure, uh, but, and they were dancing around and uh, they, they didn't have safety belts on. Well, Blake just absolutely ripped them apart for safety, you know, in terms of he was a stern, grumpy old schoolmaster, and boy, they got the message quickly. And then in the Lion New Zealand thing, when um, uh, it, it was, you know, the, the Lion New Zealand, this was the first time, uh, the 84 Hobart, first time life had been lost, and... Um, over two-thirds of the fleet withdrew. And once we went out through the Sydney here, Blake called everybody around into the afterguard and the whole crew, and I was sitting there. He said, righto, guys, there's a whole bunch of people expecting or hoping that we'll fail. And I'm looking at the faces and you think, well, you could just see all the crew. He fired them up. Well, stuff you. We're not going to fail. So, uh, but, but he had them and, you know, his team talk was very different to what he, the way he operated giving Jaws and the other guy a rocket and or the way he, he, um, sucked information out of the guys on Steinlager 2 to bring Big Red out. This was a brilliant team talk. And it didn't go on for long, and it wasn't cheese betting that you might have felt with a generation ago of, uh, you know, rugby teams, uh, uh, um, 
and the classic Foreskin's Lament uh, play written by Greg McGee where the, the, the coaches would go over the top. Um, and, and uh, the, the, you know, he, he really fired everyone up and they're all paying attention. And as soon as we went out through Sydney Heads, all of a sudden we were hit by a southerly buster, you know, a mugger's fist right in your face. It was 50 to 60 knots. And coming down the New South Wales coast was a current of one and a half knots. So wind against it. That was the second time I saw liquid Himalayas. So, uh, yeah, I mean, but, but, but also when he got into the America's Cup, he wasn't that comfortable really with um, big campaigns. He was at his best where there would be 30 people maximum. That's those on a shore apart from the crew or whatever. Say, what was the 22 on Lion, 18 on Steinlager too. And and uh, he, he, you know, he, he was great at all those things, but he also recognised that he wasn't a great round-the-boy sailor. So when it came to the America's Cup, he knew that there were people like Coots and Butterworth who knew what they were doing, either with an Olympic pedigree or Butterworth who had, um, you know, sailed match racing as a tactician and, and so on. So, But Peter, yeah, was able to get... I think for a lot of them, people achieved more than they thought they could or would because of the way Blake motivated them or sucked it out of them or did something. So do you think they could have won in 95 without him? Uh, no, because Blake was the one who put it together. I have a, a, a recording after 92. Alan Sefton and I regularly got hold of Michael Fay and said, you've got to have Peter Blake running this campaign. And Michael, for his own reasons, had really delegated to Bruce Farr running it and the, a couple of guys, um, uh, David Barnes now dead, and uh, John Clinton, who were running it. But they were really, although they were the managers, it was Bruce Farr really running the show. And I've got a recording of Blake saying, if that's the America's Cup, you can stick it. And he went back to England, and I think he wanted to spend time with his family, um, or, uh, yeah, not only wanted to, I mean, he, he had to, he'd been away for so long and if he, if he didn't spend time with his family, he wouldn't have had one. I mean, it was that, he'd been doing too much of his own stuff. And, um, Alan Sefton, I know, went to the UK at least four times, but if you told me five, at his own expense. And early on, Peter was not ready to go. But later as the summer went on, he got him at the right time. And Peter said, yep. And it was Blake who mortgaged his own house for the money, for the 75000 deposit. So without that, it would not have happened. But then came the other thing that Blake, um, and he would have been influenced by others, and definitely Coots and Butterworth, definitely Snackenberg, that let's have a sailor-driven campaign. Because... Even the 92 one with Bruce Farr, um, but way back, whether it was Olin Stevens, the American designers or whatever, all these designers would um, design a boat and then ordain you with their creation and the sailors had to get on with it then. But believe it or not, I've got to know over the years, the sailors have got a lot of clues. Like the beautiful clear deck layout on NZL32, that came from the sailors. The flat top main, that came from Warwick Fleury and Simon Daudney. The sailors worked that out. And, and so many other good practical suggestions. And so what happened was that once they got underway, Coots was head of sailing, as in 
one ship, one captain, and he selected who would be on the crew. And when it came to design, uh, Tom Snackenberg was the overall coordinator, um, not only with uh, the, the, the hull and the design, but the sails, coordinating that with the mast. That was Snackenberg heading that. Ross Blackman, he was the head of the whole admin and so on. So there were components or whatever, and they all are responsible to Blake. And I know it was Butterworth who suggested the Coots, well, maybe at this spot we should get... Um, uh, PJ Blake on board, which he came on, and it was nowhere near as physical or as difficult as what Grant Dalton had to try and undo in uh, 2013. Um, but it was enough, and PJ Blake had, you know, a bit of a crook elbow, and Tony Ray stood in for him. But the most important thing was that Peter was on board and could see um, uh, that if we got this, maybe this would help. And rather than all this blue sky stuff and thinking, wouldn't it be great if whatever, um, uh, that's where PJ Blake came out with the famous phrase. They were short of money, really tight of money, and on a limited, very limited budget, if they were going to spend any of it, will it make the boat go faster? And that was the key point. And look, that could apply to any business, whatever, you know, a small electrical business somewhere in West Auckland or in Dunedin, it doesn't matter. Whatever you're spending, will it make the business go better? And uh, will it make the uh, the boat go fa- faster? And and th- there were, in spite of me banging on about 86, 87 and KZ7 and thinking they could have and should have, um, they learned key lessons from Dennis Connor. And uh, the first one was, um, don't dream about things you haven't got. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had another six weeks when you got six days or six months when you got six weeks? You deal with what you've got. Or wouldn't it be great if we had another three million and we've only got one million? Well, what you've got is what you've got in the bank and and, and work to it from that. So there were key lessons that... Um, you know, experience is what you get right after you need it. And and uh, so there were key lessons that um, weren't really learnt from 86, 87, Fremantle, that weren't really, forget about the big boat, that was a different one-off thing. Uh, NZL 20, I mean, all those boats were the same but different. There wasn't a long, narrow boat like America Cubed as an example. Anyway... Um, all those scars of experience, like for all of us in life, whatever, the biggest teacher is losing or experience, and uh, uh, all those things added up. And, and so that was another factor in Blake's leadership was he didn't try and do everything and he didn't, you know, try and dance and play in the orchestra at the same time. What what he, he did was these are the things and he coordinated it all and he was on board the boat and could see how good these guys were and <clears throat> they they knew that NZL thirty two was so much quicker. They they um played uh you know the the game of playing it down and and putting people off the scent. And a very interesting point about all that's going on at the moment. I know Coots and Butterworth were in a special meeting representing um, the the uh, in those days it was it, for ninety five it became Team New Zealand so this was the early days of Team New Zealand not Emirates before that it had been the New Zealand Challenge and there was a meeting with the defenders and the challengers and someone in the meeting said. Um, 
oh, that's not fair. And uh, a very prominent guy, an American, uh, who uh, was heading a campaign in 95 and who had sailed with Dennis Connor and um, was um, a highly regarded and acclaimed sailor, America's Cup Hall of Fame. John Marshall is reputed, alleged to have said, where does it say in the deed of gift it has to be fair? And so I think it's important to remember that for all these people that are going on, you know, that uh, that um, all these things happen. The, 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 all of the stuff that's happening, the deed of gift runs it and makes the America's Cup the event as it is so different rather than what New York's suggesting and having it in the winter and rotating it and so on. I mean, you're going to have that. Russell Coots' sale GP is a great concept if it can continue to be funded. And you've got the TP-52s and others. And there's big regattas uh, in monohull, keelboats, maxis in Europe. So you don't need another one. The America's Cup stands because of the deed of gift. It's probably um, quite a good segue in the fact that you were saying, is it fair, the story about, uh, you know, is it fair or, or where does it say in the deed of gift that it needs to be fair? Because um, that kind of brings us nicely probably to Dennis Connor in 1986-87. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was a very special campaign, obviously, and you had previously said that you'd thought that the you know New Zealand would have more chance of getting a man on the moon than, yeah, yeah. than going on, on challenging for New Zealand uh, international sports oldest prize. Yeah. But Dennis Connor was probably the biggest name and face of that event, and he famously accused um, New Zealand of cheating for having a plastic boat. Yeah, you would have been present. You know what was that experience like that day? Um, I was there in the media conference when he said it. Um, well, a couple of things. Yes, uh, I remember in 1980 being there and thinking, "Boy, this is way beyond New Zealand." Um, and uh, I'd. Um, uh, New Zealand would get a man on the moon quicker. It, it was just so, it's so hard and difficult to win. And I started taking a lot of notice of the America's Cup back in the 70s when some Frank Packer entered and he was asked, why did you enter for the America's Cup? And he said, delusions of grandeur and too much alcohol. And, and uh, you know, it is so, so, so difficult to win. I was there that night Um but over the years, uh, we have become very, very good friends with Tom and Betsy Whidden. And Tom Whidden was six-time tactician for Dennis Connor. And I won it three times. And um, sadly, Tom was not able to get to New Zealand this last go. Uh, and um, Kate Montgomery contacted Tom uh, about any quote she could use for the induction to the America's Cup Hall of Fame. Tom made some very flattering comments, uh, which, you know, I appreciated. But um, about five or six years ago, Tom was at our place for lunch, and as he would do, reminisce about a whole bunch of things. And he told the story that um, he and Dennis Connor were di- driving in Fremantle. And uh, he said... DC, I'm worried about that Kiwi boat, KZ7. It's fast boat and it's very, very well sailed. He said, we've got to rattle their cage somehow. We've got to upset them or put them off. Or we've got to do something. And Dennis Connor never replied and he just nodded his head. Mm-hmm. Nothing was said. And the next night, 
um, out of nowhere, but clearly from the prompting of the comment or observation Tom Wooden, who is a very close friend of Dennis's and a trusted confidant, had said, and it made Dennis think about it, out of nowhere he came, well, there had been 74 uh, 12 metres built in aluminium. Why would you want to build one in fiberglass unless you wanted to cheat? And Tom Black, oh, oh, I don't think I'd have said that. But And I know for sure Michael Fay got sidetracked and distracted. It was ridiculous. And uh, because Michael Fay felt that his integrity and the New Zealand Challenger was called, the integrity, they had two Lloyds inspectors on site all day, every day. And I think anybody in the building, they'd have to ask if they could sneeze. I mean, that's how tight the Lloyd's control was. And they knew that. And Tom Wooden, late later said, you know, it's, um, you know, he was impressed that it was a very fast boat and very good design. It was a combination of Far, Holland and, and, uh, Laurie Davidson. And, and, um, there were very good sailors on board too. Um, but one of the interesting points was that um, why change your winning formula? Remember, they went 38 wins and one loss. And that comes to the point, like anything in life, why change your winning formula? Well, that is another key point they learned from Dennis Connor. The America's Cup is a game of change. Because Stars and Stripes, Dennis Connor and Widden and Co., Billy Trinkle, they struggled, really struggled to get to the final four of the Louis Vuitton. And um, they changed, uh, they just squeaked in, uh, keeping White Crusader, this is Harold Cudmore, the, the uh, British challenger, out. And and uh, Chris Law was involved with them as well. And, and uh, you know, they had some very good sailors as well. And the, they managed to just squeak in uh, narrowly and to get into the final four. And then they went up against Tom Blackhaller and beat them and, uh, uh, KZ7 beat French Kiss. But during that time, after squeezing in, they made big changes to the keel and they made also changes to their sails, notably their foresails at Hetzels. And, and, um, those things, whereas Team New Zealand, while we're on a winning formula, let's change it. A week later, uh, the following week, um, if the breeze had, you know, it would, the, the conditions were totally different and KZ7 could have done, you know, made, it, it, the result could have been different, but it wasn't. And um, so that's where that came from. And I, I remember the reaction and they, uh, Dennis kind of knew what he was doing and boy, he lit the fuse. Because it's probably something that is well known in America's Cup, isn't it? It's the, the off-water drama, it's the politics, it's the needling. Do you like that sort of aspect that comes with the America's Cup? Um, I think I've got used to it. And things that have happened recently, I keep shrugging my shoulders that, yeah, let's not get too carried away by this. And what we had here is that, you know, this last go that I spoke to, you know, I I felt there was some media and some young rookie uh, journalist in the written press or something taking the bait and, and, you know, getting too serious about it. And in fact, there was, um, d- during the cup, uh, Rebecca Hater worked on, uh, the, these boats were so fast and going quick, they were, they would turn around and create their own vacuum. And so, uh, uh, as you turn around, 
uh, Jimmy Spittle explained, all of a sudden it slowed down because they're back into their own vacuum. And Rebecca uh, uh, did a, a very good story on that, and, and uh, we we followed it up. And I was speaking to a couple of the mainstream journalists, and they said, "Look, that's too technical for us. We we don't go there now. You know, you might have done it in the days of Alan Sefton and John Gasbridge, uh, way back in the seventies, eighties, but now it's you know, tell us your emotions and how do you feel about your emotions and all of that, and so." Um, I, I, I think, you know, some, some of that stuff has been lost and maybe it could be for the clickbait journalism that we've got today, but people were just rising to the fly on stuff that wasn't necessary or they were, you know, writing headlines about what Max Serena was supposed to have said or whatever and <clears throat> what Grant Dalton was said. Uh, look, it's part of the cup, and and uh, Malin Burnham was another. He was the San Diego Yacht Club, who was heavily involved with Dennis Connor. Boy, they were good at it. And uh, <coughs> it was uh, I was reminiscing recently with Michael Fay. He was inducted in two thousand and three here with Malin Burnham, and they couldn't stand each other. So you know these things. You, look, you take it with a grain of salt. And being when you were younger, yes, I was probably more impressed. So then. The reaction, I guess, then to, you know, Russell Coote, Brad Butterworth and the group of five um, switching to a Lingy in yeah. for 2003, you know, and a lot of the countries still haven't forgiven them. No, though. no, Taking they haven't. it too seriously? <coughs> they won't. No, no, it's right. And I know that Brad Butterworth was uh, speaking at um, a, 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 a breakfast recently of notable Aucklanders and New Zealanders at the breakfast. And he was talking about the business of the America's Cup, meaning, okay, it's yacht club to yacht club, and then the syndicates representing it. And Brad was trying to distill it down and break it down. And someone said, well, why did you um, um, uh, uh, leave? You know, someone couldn't get over that. As I was just recently um, in, a, in a retail shop um, framing, and this woman brought up about um, 2013, Leading eight, eight one, and how did that happen? And Jimmy Spittle got up to something, and oh, oh look, you know it, it's amazing. But um, Brad's response was, I, I know that he said, well, uh, the key thing that happened was that uh, we were in discussions, and we had heard that um, uh, Sean Reeves had been with One World, and uh, or uh, what was going to be set up in One World, and he had seven or eight people. Uh, already signed up and who were going. Uh, but by accident or coincidence, Russell Cooch ran into Douglas Myers at uh, the airport in Queenstown. And they had a quick, short uh, discussion, remembering Douglas Myers was a great, great admirer of Peter Blake's and uh, helped fund Blake a lot. To the point Steinlager too, remember, I'll get back to this, but you should know this, that Steinlager 2, uh, the first build uh, hull of Steinlager 2, it was going to become cardboard. It was just the whole process of uh, of what they were doing um, with with the, um, the composite material and so on. It just didn't work. And, and um, the guys overseeing that build were actually Shoebridge and Butterworth. And uh, all of a sudden, wow, this won't go on. So uh, they said, right, we've got to scrap it, start again. And Douglas Myers himself paid that because of Peter Blake. 
and it was well into seven figures. So that wasn't any other sponsorship money. That was out of Douglas Myers' back pocket. But Blake and Douglas Myers, particularly through the influence of Tom Clark, was a great admirer of Blake's. And I remember him saying to me once, uh, well, I want Peter to come back uh, for 2000 because in 95 he only got wages. He's got to do better than that. <clears throat> so uh, with Tom Clark winding up Sir Douglas Myers and Douglas Myers, um, and I, I would say the relationship with Coots and Sir Douglas Myers, even when they met, it, it would be cool. But they had a discussion that was civil, and Russell made a, a comment, and uh, Douglas Myers said, well, if you don't like it, go somewhere and do something else. Bang, that was the cash register then. That really ticked it off for Coots. And Do you think those five would have gone if they would had known the reaction that um, ensued? Uh, more, yeah, they, they live with it. Um, but in the end, you know, they've still got to be looked after. And, you know, that um, they, they did and life goes on and like all prominent former All Blacks and sailors, you know, that uh, once you're out of the limelight, um, you've gone. Um, that, you know, a lot of the people who criticised, it was, you know, obviously disappointing, but they've got to look after themselves in terms of financially however they can do it. I, I, I'm not so sure they really were quite aware of the reaction um, because they were overseas there, you know, w- w- when that happened and building up. But they certainly were aware of what was happening in 2003. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the campaign was that black campaign that came out and they had. But no, they, 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 they're aware of it. But there, there were other, other factors in that. And I, I think in the end, that, well, just the story I've told you about Tom Clark. Look, PJ Blake had told me, and I've got it in recordings on the record as well, I think he wanted to move on into more the environmental causes then. That's where he wanted to, after 95, win it. But he came back and and he um, um, got the old Seamaster and, you know, to go and, and do, doing that stuff, and he had the sponsorship with Omega or whatever. But even during that cup, um, I, I, I'm told that... Um, uh, down um, Halsey Street, the, the biggest problem was Team New Zealand in 2003. They had administration on one side of Halsey Street and the, the, the sailing team on the other, and they hardly saw each other. In contrast to um, uh, San Diego, where there was one big pool and people would see each other, whether at the water cooler or around the um, coffee table or whatever. So the circumstances were different, and I think um, maybe notably Russell Coote, I mean, he led it, and the others followed and went with him. <clears throat> the others wouldn't have gone if he hadn't been urged by, by Russell. But Russell was uh, allowed to think things he shouldn't or wasn't kept involved or made assumptions that were wrong. And then uh, the story I've told you about Douglas Myers tipped it, because um, definitely Coots knew that, Myers and Blake were very close. Yeah. I just—I've got a couple more. I'm aware that I've taken up a lot of your time this afternoon, which I really greatly appreciate. But just on a more personal note, um, you had a brush with cancer in 2006. Yeah. Um, and I read a piece that you penned, even that saying that you'd been in denial about it for quite a long yeah. time. 
What, what was that experience like to um, go through something like that and, and, you know, I guess see your own mortality in the mirror? Uh, well, I'm not proud of it, but if there's one person, just one, listening to this um, and I can help, then I should tell the story. <clears throat> um, I went to see Michael Mackey, um, who is an acclaimed specialist in uh, cancers and prostate and urology, all of that stuff. And I, I, I was seeing about something, you know, no, no, and he said, oh, it's a while since I've tested you. Uh, perhaps we could have a look. And it was only before that, maybe Michael three or four times and his colleague a couple of times, I'd had the, the blue finger. And it didn't particularly appeal to me. But I said, oh, Michael, if you must, okay. So he did. And and um, it was all by accident and it wasn't of any concern that I went. And um, so anyway, he seemed to take longer than usual. And he later explained to me he feels something rough on the other side, on the dark side, if you like. So he said, we better have a biopsy. And um, so we went away to the biopsy. And I'll never forget walking in this day and... He had a very serious face on, and he said, well, I want to tell you you've uh, got cancer, it's, it comes out. And, but he was taking off in a day or two to, um, he, he was mad on cycling, and the Tour de France is a certain couple of days that amateur cyclists can ride the whatever it is, the, the toughest section. And it might take him a couple of days to do it compared to the pros. And he was doing that and going away for six weeks. And I got home and Claudia asked what happened. I said, oh, nothing much, you know, <clears throat> I think it'll be okay. Um, but I, I did tell one person, actually it's David Abercrombie, the CEO, when he was working as a physio. And um, I'd see him every other week and David would... Um, keep asking me, what am I doing about it? I said, oh, nothing much, whatever. And David actually got quite firm to the point of being aggressive and language we don't have to use to jolt me into it. But the other key thing was that Michael Mackey's got a um, outstanding uh, senior charge nurse, or an outstanding staff, but Janine Pinfold. And she left a message uh, on, on our phone, on our landline. Hello, Peter. This is Janine from Michael Mackey's office. We're concerned we haven't heard from you. But unfortunately, I didn't take that call. And Claudia did. So I then went to see this. I, I, it was late May that I went to see Michael Mackey. So we're getting into June. And uh, by mid-August, I started thinking, with the help of David Abercrombie, my own nagging conscience, um, that I better do something. I went to see Dr. John Mayhew, who was everlasting, my doctor, everlasting credit. Didn't score points, talked down to me, or um, wasn't gratuitous in any way, and just asked some very good questions of me and told me, well, this is what I'd ask Michael Mackey, whatever. So on the 1st of September, um, we uh, went to see Michael Mackey and Claudia knew I was going and she invited herself, remembering as a quick backdrop, she's had breast cancer. So we went in and uh, my first, hello Michael, my first, Michael, have I really got cancer? 
and he looked at me, and I'll never forget the look. It'll probably, out of all the looks I've ever had from anyone, this one will haunt me the most because he looked at me and said, boy, I've got to write one here, haven't I? I've told him that three months ago, four months ago. So I asked another couple of questions and he went through it. And because Claudia had been through it, then she took over and <clears throat> asked the next few questions. And so this consultation was 20-odd minutes. And we decided this is the 1st of September 2006. And I was on the rack on thirteenth, the first possible time, the 13th of September 2006. And... Um, Thankfully, it didn't get into my lymph nodes. I mean, Michael has told me politely, he's such a, a great guy um, and the best uh, that, uh, you know, as Michael Fay once told me, PJR research right through Australia and New Zealand and Michael, Mackie's the best in New Zealand, you know, and he's world class, which we knew anyway. And uh, so Michael's told me another couple of months and I may not have been here to tell the story now. So not only what Michael did, but dear Janine, who's, um, she was the one giving me the hurry up. Whenever I see her now, I say, hello, my conscience, because she was my conscience. And <clears throat> Claudia didn't really twig, I don't think. I played it down, which is no credit to me at all. And I know David Abercrombie was brilliant. And once Claudia got the message, it was, so we, we cancelled an overseas trip in late September and I was on the rack and, um, it was quite an extensive operation. But here we are. What am we, this is six, 15, we're 15, it'll be 15 years, um, this September. So, um, and so far all my checks and PSAs have been good. And in contrast to some other fellows, including some very good friends, but other pe acquaintances of people, because I do try and help people, uh, that by, acknowledging how stupid I was and uh, how silly and, and um, going into denial just doesn't help anything. I mean, it, it, another month or two of denial and that would have been it. And so, um, uh, I, I mean, all, all the checks, some people subsequently have had the operation I had, uh, but then, you know, meaning cutting you open and cutting it out. Uh, but they've had to have subsequent radiation or whatever. But I haven't had any of that, and I've been fine, and I've been very, very lucky, and very lucky I've had a few consciences in, in my world. Just as well you didn't answer that phone then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, just a couple of quick rapid-fire ones to finish off. Uh, where does your extraordinary recall of dates come from? Because even today you've rattled out May 13, 1995, September 1, 2006, something or rather 1970. Um, how do you remember all those I dates? Know. I don't know. Too much. I don't know. It's just it possibly could be. Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure. It's... Perhaps you, uh, when we started talking about this, I mean, it's been 50 years, although initially from 1970 until 1987, I did have other jobs <clears throat> um, and it was a part-time. But after Fremantle, I was given four serious offers, including a couple overseas, uh, and they're all very flattering, and that's when I went full-time. And so... Um, you know, I, I've been privileged and lucky in the places you go and the people you meet. And in that time, perhaps hopefully it's been reflected. I've just loved what I've been able to do. Uh, 
and whatever influence I might have had behind the scenes in helping set up Olympic Sail or the Citizen Match racing. And, you know, I'm patron up at Torbay Sailing and Ponsonby Cruising. And if I can help with things there, as I do a lot at the Yacht Squadron and other places, um, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to do that. So partly the answer to how to the dates and the people and what we remember is that um, I've just enjoyed what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know. I I've just yeah do, do remember them. So um, so yeah. Hopefully, I've still got my marbles to remember that. Well, yeah. I certainly have. Where does the nickname Splash come from? Um, <clears throat> well, it was Fremantle, nineteen eighty eighty six eighty seven. And um, Louis Vuitton had a big special function at a place about uh, one hour's drive north of Fremantle. And it was the only place in the Southern Hemisphere where those magnificent white horses from Spain come from. I think they've got them in Las Vegas now as well. But they do this prancing and all the stuff. I've forgotten what they're called. Um, so, uh, and uh, at this ranch, and it was a special place. And um, there, uh, there was a swimming pool, but also there was a paddler's pool. So all the way around, at this special dinner um, for for basically the sailing media of of um, who were covering, and it was funded by Louis Vuitton. And I had a glass and I was sidetracked as I was talking and I walked straight into the the paddling pool and got soaking wet and broke the glass, managed to cut my hand. And Alan Sefton, because I used to call him Scribbles, one morning uh, way back we were sharing a room, was at the 73 um, Southern Cross Sydney Hobart. And he had to get up early to file back to the Auckland Star and whatever system the written press did that day. And he said, um, it's all very well for you broadcasters to lie in bed, but us scribblers have got to get up early. So I called him Scribbles. So he got me back by calling me Splash. And and uh, so that's how it happened, which was a very interesting that um, in uh, a couple of the... Um, Fremantle papers, there was a gossip section, and this woman writing it said, Peter Montgomery had an interesting time getting home, explaining to his wife the next morning uh, why he was in different clothes when he got home uh, than, than what he left to go out in. So uh, anyway, Claudia got the message eventually by those who, who eyewitnessed it. But um, no, there's, a, there's only a small group who called me Splash, Alan Sefton, some of the Sins people. Um, but I do have a, a photograph uh, next door uh, fr- of uh, uh, Francis Hateau, the uh, brilliant French s- sailor. She won the route to rum in the early 90s, just this little dot, tiny little dot of a woman sailing this huge multi-hull, um, finishing in the Caribbean. And it's a magnificent photograph. And I got it, uh, I gave it, and I said, would you sign this for me, Florence? And... Um, she wrote on it, splash, whatever, and something in French. She was killed a couple of years ago, remember, in Argentina when they were doing a, um, a whole bunch of French sports stars were doing something and killed in a helicopter accident. But no, um, there's only um, the people that know that story call me splash, yeah. 
Which leads me on nicely, and for regular listeners of Broad Reach Radio, they know where this is going. Uh, it's now time, Peter Montgomery, for you to tell us the story of your worst wipeout ever. Well, I think um, the thing I, I remember was that uh, we were online in New Zealand, and um, we were smashing and bashing our way down to Bass Strait. And it, uh, I mean, as soon as we went out through uh, the Sydney Heads, we were hit by this mugger's fist of 40 to 45 knots that got up to 60 knots. And wind against the tide, it was big seas. They were generally liquid Himalayas. And um, then um, I, I remember, uh, well, two-thirds of the fleet withdrew. Life was lost for the first time in the Hobart. And... Um, the next day, um, this was on the morning. Uh, uh, well, we'd been uh, the, the the first morning after the race started at, uh, at one o'clock the day before, and uh, we um, had a whole bunch of spare sails all in the bilges, salt water sloshing around everywhere, and I was sitting just opposite the navigation station waiting for PJ Blake to give us an update of how far we've gone, how far to go, and where, what our position was. <clears throat> and along came Dr. Fraser, the ship's doctor, Dr. Fraser Maxwell. Now, who I, before I continue the story, I will say is now doing acclaimed, world-class acclaimed work in, uh, as a pediatrician at Waikato Hospital. And, you know, this is for premature babies and doing all the brilliant work that uh, Fraser Maxwell and all those other paediatricians in that world do. Anyway, at that stage, he was the ship's doctor. And um, Fraser was off colour, like a lot of the guys all on board were off colour. And we came off this huge wave. Like, oh, Christ, is the mask going to fall down? What's going to happen if we shook and shuddered? And I felt something just below my chin, and I um, I didn't really think uh, too much about it. And Dr. Fraser Axel was out to it, zonked. He was seasick, and you know he was in in amongst the um, the sail bags and not feeling too good. And somehow I wiped my arm, and there was blood everywhere. And I said, Doc, Doc, wake up, Doc. I think I've cut myself. And he looked up at me and he said, Oh, yeah, and it's big and deep too. And I said, Doc, I'm in trouble. He said, not half as much trouble as me. And went back to sleep on me. So anyway, um, I, I showed PJ Blake. And what had happened, the parallel rules on PJ Blake's chart table, these are brass, jumped off the chart table and jagged me in a vein under the, my throat. And so there's blood going everywhere. So Blake then got a can of Friars Balsam and sprayed it. Well, my head just about went through the deck above me. Boy, oh boy, I was paying attention, but it helped stop the blood a bit. But then he put on one of those butterfly um, um, uh, stickers, you know, to seal over. And he put it on the wrong way round. So he pulled it off, showing no sympathy, and it started bleeding again. 
So anyway, thanks to PJ Blake, he he got it under control. Dr. Fraser Maxwell has been the fun and jokes of a lot of people. Once we got into Milford Sound, <coughs> um, there was someone and, and someone had accidentally hurt themselves. And I remember a couple of guys saying, oh, I hope you do a better job with whatever sailor it was. I might have been Tony Ray, rather than what you did with PJ. And he poor bugger had to suffer from it. But that was... Um, Definitely, oh, there was, yeah, uh, I mean, and also in the Ceramco New Zealand when we went over and, boy, boy that, that happened a few times as well, but probably that one in the Hobart, it, it was serious stuff. Those three days in the Sydney Hobart were the, were the worst three days of my life and remain the worst three days of my life. And thankfully, a lot of these tough, macho Kiwi bloke sailors have lately acknowledged that it was bloody hard going. And look, I know that countless other races, and certainly around the world, they would have uh, conditions like that for three, four days as well, you know, in various around the world. But boy, it was hard work, really hard work. And anyway, that that all added to it, and it took a long time to. Uh, and and that race, um, my Claudia, our Kate was quite young, and she was coming home. But when she saw Lion New Zealand, we were going under more than over. And she said to Pippa Blake, I'm going down to Hobart to make sure Peter's there. So I had some explaining to do to show Claudia why I had a big jag in my in my throat. But uh, anyway, it was all, all good stuff. And we were took line honours on Hobart. And uh, it was a very special experience. And then... Um, and then I don't know how much more I should say about this, but um, uh, we... Uh, uh, New Year's Eve party in Ross Gwynevin, um on the stage at, at the casino singing with the, the, the jazz band was great. But then was it a night or two later, um, there was a toga party by the Lion New Zealand crew. And um, that would be, that would have to be in the handful of the best parties I've ever been to. And I'll never forget then the day or two later, as we cast off um, from Hobart, heading into the Southern Ocean to come through to Milford Sound as a duplicate of what we did on uh, on Ceramco, New Zealand. I remember thinking, boy, I've never seen so many, st- such a group of stunning young-looking ladies who were on the wharf waving goodbye to these guys who had all, all been at the toga party. Another good story to uh, round out, you know, what has been... Uh, an afternoon of listening to really good stories. Um, it's very hard to encapsulate, I guess, exactly um, all that you've been able to achieve and all of the experiences that you've had of the 51 years, I think it is, in, in broadcast. October, 51 years. So, um, look, it's been a really fascinating afternoon having a chat to you, Peter. I really appreciate your time yeah. um, and um, your knowledge and your ability to deliver those stories is uh it's really impressive. So yeah. thanks again. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. No, it's been good to be part of it. And hopefully, uh, well, some people will remember whether the early days of with the Southern Cross Cup of Pathfinder uh, Runaway and Wayana or the defence of the One Ton Cup and the rise and rise of New Zealand sailing. That's really been the thing that 
whatever happened in the one-time cup in 71 and then going to the Southern Cross Admirals Cup and the rise and rise of here and now, you just think of the influence that New Zealand sailors have, not only the America's Cup, but they're in so many other aspects. And what a lot of people don't get, and getting back to the MB thing and so on, do you realise there's guys now, the advances, uh, when I talked about in 1980, we didn't have knowledge and technology. Now the composite materials on the development of what New Zealanders are doing here in New Zealand, a whole bunch of them are now working at Rocket Lab at the Mahia Peninsula. And I just don't think those who are determined to be aggrieved or take a shot at yachting for whatever um, just don't appreciate the benefits, not only of whether it's super yachts coming in for refits and or other other people coming on, but there's just so much more that's going on that, um, uh, you know, the craftsmen who who have been in apprenticeships and boat building and whatever else, the stuff they do now is just quite extraordinary. Sounds like another podcast, Peter. (laughs) Thanks again. Well, that's it. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Broadreach Radio. I think you will agree that PJ Montgomery is one of the special characters in the New Zealand sporting landscape. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please give us a like and a follow, or share it on social media. It's hard to believe that's now the 31st episode since the podcast was started last year. So take some time to look over the back catalogue to find another one that might be of interest. In the meantime, I'll catch you in a fortnight with the next Broadreach Radio podcast. Take care.